0: So thank you for joining us this morning, and we've been uh, over the last couple of weeks now working our way through the Book of Second Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, and part of it is just to see um, there, there's a lot in this letter that deals with suffering and hardship and difficulty, and, and and in finding encouragement in those moments, and I think that's where I've been wanting to try and aim our, uh, my, my my sermons to you over the last couple of weeks. That, There is a sense of hope in the midst of hardship and difficulty. So this morning, I need to start and just say, I've never really fully got the appeal of sleeping in a tent. Now, I know lots of you love tents, and I know that many of you love camping, and the idea of of going off into a tent fills you with joy and delight. I've got to confess that I don't really get that same feel with camping. I mean, there's there's no indoor plumbing. And then, of course, you're either sleeping on a blow up mattress that deflates by the morning so that you're now sleeping on the floor, or you're sleeping in a camp bed that's been designed by a chiropractors. And they designed it knowing that there'll be lots of business for them when people come back from camping. And then you've got to sleep in a sleeping bag, which makes you feel like a bit of a slug or a worm because there's no place to move. Um, you, you can't go rubbaging in the fridge at night. There's no friendly little light coming on when you go and find a midnight snack. Instead, you've got to stagger and stumble over everyone else's sleeping bags as you go and find a cooler box to find something from. So, I don't know, pe- perhaps my of, lack of joy has been tempered by those occasions when I have spent time in a tent. I, I'm sure I've told this story before, but many years ago, Cullum and I went, went camping. We went for a weekend. Cullum was still in primary school. And uh, we went down to a campsite down the south coast, And we went to set up our our, our, our tent, only to discover that the tent that we'd been given didn't have tent pegs. And it was unfortunately one of those old A-frame camp tents that needed guy ropes to tie it all down and keep it all up. So off we went to look for something that would would work as tent pegs down the south coast on a Sunday afternoon. Nothing was open except pick-and-pay, and and the only thing that pick-and-pay was selling were wooden skewers, the kind that you would use for uh, a kebab. And so we bought a packet of those and managed to get the tent up. And those wooden skiers worked pretty well. Right until about midnight, when a volcano erupted, or at least that's that's what it sounded like. And and that was followed by an absolute tsunami, uh, just a downpour of rain. Um, What happened then was that the tent turned from being a tent and became some kind of flappy paper bag, which we couldn't quite get out of Uh, the tent pegs hadn't really worked all that well. So what had to happen is that I had to now go out into what was rapidly becoming a vertical river in order to try and tie the tent pegs down. I told Cullum to stay in the tent, hoping that his weight would keep the tent from being blown away, except at that stage in his life, Cullum was severely underweight. He was not quite the strapping young man that he is now. And there was a fear that actually he would blow away with the tent. Um, in my running around in the pitch dark with this, in this absolute torrential downpour, trying to put the tent pegs together, I ran into a tree and gashed my head open. We finally managed to get the tent back together and then huddled in a corner as uh, on the only dry spot in the tent as the rest of the tent was essentially an indoor swimming pool. Joy and delight. I suppose it's given us good memories, but it's not the sort of thing I want to repeat. I think maybe one of the other things that put me off staying in a tent is that I spent considerable time in Mozambique, sharing a tent with Kevin. And the less said about that, the better. But yes, I, I do have to say, I think that a permanent brick and mortar home is a little better, right? I mean, the beds are nicer, the plumbing is a little more convenient. And I know that the nomads in the desert have their fancy tents with carpets and cushions and silk curtains and all sorts of things. And and it really does, they they make it look very comfortable. But to be honest, they also have camels. And it's just, give me a house anytime. Now, we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning in just a moment. And and, and we're going to read a little bit about what Paul has to say about tents. Now, we need to keep in mind a couple of things here. Uh, Some people in reading this passage have said what Paul is doing here is telling us about what happens in the afterlife. And I'm not sure that that's the case. I don't think Paul sat down to write a discourse on personal eschatology. Sorry for the bad words. Uh, In fact, the whole whole thing of what what happens when you die is kind of incidental to the bigger picture that Paul is painting. Let me say that what he's doing here in Chapter 5 is really a continuation of what he's been speaking about over the last two or three chapters. And this is almost a bit of a parenthesis. See, he started off in the the beginning of chapter 4 by by speaking about we, well, well, he starts off by saying we have this ministry from God. And the interesting thing is that he then then doesn't actually go on to describe what this ministry is. So he talks about this ministry, but doesn't tell us what this ministry is until the very end of chapter 5. And at the very end of chapter 5, he then says this ministry of reconciliation. And we're going to get there next week. So it it takes him quite a while to to get to the point of describing what this ministry is and what he's done in between while he's waiting to get to this ministry. He's gone a little bit of a sidetrack and gone, we've been given this wonderful ministry, but God's given this ministry to people like you and me. And God's done this wonderful thing of this great ministry and put it into a clay pot. That's what he said last week. We have this wonderful ministry in jars of clay. And one of the things that you've got to say is that surely God could have done a better job about this. And in fact, that's kind of what the Corinthians were arguing about. Surely God could have done a better job. Surely God could have done something better than taking this wonderful ministry and putting it in a jar of clay. Why, Why didn't God take this wonderful ministry of reconciliation and announce it to the world with archangels? Why didn't God send angels into all the world? I mean, after all, if an angel knocked on your door, shining in white with the big wings and a shiny halo, wouldn't wouldn't you know? Wouldn't that convince you of truth? Even if God just once a year send an angel into the sky uh, to blow a trumpet and make this big announcement, wouldn't that really work? Could God not have used someone better than Paul to announce this, to be this minister of, of reconciliation? could could god not have used caesar i mean caesar was was popular caesar was was famous caesar had power surely if caesar was the one to make these announcements things would have worked better Or, or what about one of the the greek olympian heroes surely one of them would have done the job because after all isn't that what we what we do today we want to see someone famous advertising stuff and then we know oh yes this is a good thing so we see Sia Colisi advertising some kind of deodorant, and we think, oh, well, i better get that deodorant too because that will make me into just as good as a rugby player as Sia right. Because if they use, uh, I mean, you, you, you see that, that the advertising companies never use some kind of overweight, middle-aged, balding man in their adverts. It just doesn't happen. It's always some kind of sculpted adamus with his shirt off in the gym. And they do that because they know if they use someone like me with my shirt off in a gym to advertise their product, that their competitors are going to make millions. And so what Paul has been at pains to say over the last couple of weeks is just this. He's saying, can you see the counterintuitiveness of God from this? That instead of God using some superhero, superhuman kind of person, some angel to come and announce the good news, God takes this good news and gives it to frail fragile human beings like you and I. He hands it over to, to a clay pot, a clay jar, people that are under pressure. And so that's what we're going to carry on with this week. That is, ministers of reconciliation, appointed by God, just as Paul was, we might not be superhuman. And in fact, to be honest, most of us are probably feeling a little frail, a little flawed, a little broken, a little weak, a little bit less than the archangels. And I know that might not be great for your self-esteem, but it's kind of who we are. And based on that, Paul says, even though that's who we are, God is something in store for us. And so with that in mind, we're going to ask Paige um, to read for us this morning. She's going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first 10 verses. If you'd like to follow on with her there, turn there in your Bibles and follow on with Paige. Thank you, Paige. Off you go.
1: Today's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 to 10. Our heavenly dwelling, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit
0: That uh, hammock is quite um, tempting, I must say. Thanks for reading for us this morning. Now, there's five things I want to point out from that passage that Paige just read to us today. Five things that I want us to just kind of grab hold of this morning if we can. And it's this. It's what we know, what we experience, what we were made for, what we're sure of, and what we'll do. You get that? What we know, what we experience, what we're made for, what we're sure of what we'll do. So here's what we know. Paul Paul starts that passage, he started, chapter 5, verse 1, with this is what we know. Now we know. There are a lot of things that we know. There are a lot of things that we think we know. There are many things that we don't know, but we really should know. And I think that this is what Paul is talking about here. This is something that we should know, although you may not be aware of it. And it's kind of a a, a bit of an odd thing. He says, here's what we know. If this tent gets destroyed, we've got an eternal building made by God, which sounds like a, a bit of an odd thing to know. Why do we need to know that we've got a tent that's going to be replaced by a building? That's kind of just weird. What is he even talking about? Now, on the one hand, it makes us think back to Old Testament days and Old Testament times makes us think of the tabernacle that Moses had in the desert, that tent that went around with the people of Israel. And eventually, in the days of David, David says, it's not just not right that I live in a palace built of bricks and stones and God has this shabby old tent, and his son Solomon replaces that tent with a building. And so it kind of makes us think of that, that there's this old tent that's just slowly becoming shabbier and shabbier and needs to be replaced with something a little bit more permanent. And then the book of Hebrews tells us that even that sort of permanent structure built by Solomon was itself uh, just a replica, a copy of the true permanent dwelling of God in heaven. So it kind of makes us think about those sort of things. But Paul's talking about something even more than that. And as you read that passage further on, you begin to, to see, I think you begin to understand it, what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this physical body. See, at this point in his life, Paul was working part-time as a tent maker. He was a leather worker, because tents back in those days were made of leather. They weren't made of the super synthetic, super lightweight vortex stuff, whatever it is. And so I suspect that's why he used this analogy. He's no doubt sitting in a room somewhere, sucking on the end of his pool, wondering what shall I write about next? And his eyes fall on the latest um, project that he's got a, a tent repair job. And he goes, oh, I know, I'm just like a tent. And off he goes. And, of course, Paul didn't just make tents, he repaired tents. And the point is that even, even the very best leather tents will, after time, show signs of wear and tent. The tent we, we've got, we now have two tents. We've got the old, that's why I'm a little stressed on two tents. Sorry, that's a really lame joke. Um, so we've got the old A-frame tent, but we've also got one of those fancy things with, I don't know, spring-loaded, elasticated stuff inside. But even those, they're starting to wear and fade in time. And, and so even a good leather tent, like, like Paul would have, would show signs of wear and tear. It'll, it'll, it'll get a little leaky. It'll start to fall apart. And so while a tent is fine for a while, it's not really a permanent home. And so, so think of refugees. Think of nomads. Think of refugee camps. And, and this is the analogy that Paul is drawing for us. That This frail body that he earlier on called a clay pot is fragile. It's subject to breaking. He says, it's now being co- we're now comparing it to, to a flimsy tent that leaks and is drafty, which perfectly describes some of us, leaky and drafty. And so here's what Paul is saying. We are mis- uh, ministers of this message that God has given, and yet this body that we inhabit is a frail and flimsy thing. And how is it that we have this wonderful message in this frail and flimsy body that will one day fall apart and he says it will be destroyed and whether that happens at the command of the emperor or whether it will happen as a result of just the ravages of time it will eventually decay it will eventually fall apart and we know this that's what paul is saying now this we know and you can you can fight it if you like. You can resist the ravages of time. You can do as much repair work as you like. You can trowel on that makeup and fill in the cracks if you want to. But you know that you're fighting a losing battle. And so we know this as followers of Jesus. We know this. that This body is temporary. That God has something more in store for us. And so Paul says this is what we should know. That when this frail and fragile earthly body is finally shed, we will inherit, inhabit something far more substantial. So let me be clear about this, right? The great endpoint of our existence is not as a disembodied spirit floating off into the ethereal spirit world somewhere, some kind of wafting whisk with a harp sitting on a cloud. That, that's, that's not what God has in store for us forever. Greek philosophy taught that, Greek philosophy thought that the idea was that the body is a prison and the spirit needs to escape from it and death was the great escape. But that's not a biblical philosophy at all. And Paul is pointing us to this greater reality, that this is what we know. One day we will be even more substantial than what we are now. And you may feel as though you're pretty substantial at the moment, but Paul says we'll be more substantial than this. We're gonna be transformed from being just a flimsy tent that's leaking and drafty into a permanent building. This is what we know. We are clay pots and flimsy tents, but one day we will be golden urns and Chrysler buildings. That's what we know. We know what the future holds, but this is what we experience. This is what Paul says. We know this to be true, but this is what we currently experience. And I don't know if you've ever found this, that sometimes what we know doesn't always match with what we experience. And so Paul does this whole thing of, this is our future hope, but meanwhile. And very often when you go about meanwhile, you mean there's a, it's, it's a bit of a backward step. Meanwhile, meanwhile is very often a bit of a letdown. The future is bright, but meanwhile. And here's Paul's meanwhile for us. In verse 2 and verse 4, he says, meanwhile, we groan. Meanwhile, we grow. So so this is a great future of a big house and a warm bed. But meanwhile, in this tent, we grow because it's raining and the pegs have come loose and we're getting wet and we're uncomfortable. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes there is. There's lots of joy and delight. There's lots of joy and delight in camping. There is. There's lots of joy and delight in life here and now. There's lots of joy and delight in this tent that we inhabit. And and so we do, we all enjoy deep moments of pleasure and satisfaction. We all have great experiences of of delight and happiness. There are days, there are weeks, there are months of of, of great fulfillment. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've got to say, that's not always the case. There are enough times of groaning and being burdened too. And we groan right now because we're locked down and we're locked in. And there's lots of groaning going on in Facebook. I see plenty of that moaning and groaning. And we're, we're burdened. We are. We're burdened with the need we have to, to provide for our families. It's a bit like what we read last week, that we're, we're hard-pressed. We're perplexed. We're hounded. We're knocked down. And that describes us just as well as being joyful and delighted in moments too. And so our current experience is very often groaning. Some of you groan just getting out of bed in the morning. As the body ages, more and more parts uh, begin to ache and the pains begin to sneak in. But even if you're young, life throws, and fit and healthy, life throws the curveball, and and there are moments, even as a young person, where we feel burdened and groaning, longing for something more. And can I say this, that, that if that is your experience, then welcome to normal. It's not to say that we glorify groaning or that we pursue groaning or that we pursue burdens. It's not to say that, that, that this in any way justifies your moaning and your groaning. Uh, and there's no ways that you, you should be able to groan at your spouse and say, oh, the pastor says it's normal. It's okay. It's not okay. But it is kind of the reality of life. We should be pursuing joy. But Paul sets out the reality of life for us here and now. That we groan because life is hard. And we will be burdened. We'll be burdened by the needs of others. We'll be burdened by the expectations that we place upon ourselves. We're, we're burdened by our own sinful foolishness. We're going to be burdened. But the good news of the gospel is that we were made for something more than this. We were made for something more than just being frail and fragile, a tent that get, gets blown about by the storms. And so Paul says in verse 5 that it is God who has made us for this very purpose. And you've got to say, well, for what purpose? Why did God make us? So we've talked about what we know. We've said this is what we experience. But what were we made for? What have we been made for? We have been made for more than this. Paul says, we've been made for glory. We've been made for heaven. We've, we've been made for, he says, he uses a different analogy. He mixes his metaphors and it all gets very messy for, for, for an English teacher. But he says, we've been made for better clothes than what we're wearing right now. We've been made to be a building and not a tent. Let me try and unravel a little bit of what he means here. He, what he means is that we've been made for more than this simple life, but as full of happiness as it often is. We'd be made for something more i think it was c.s lewis who, who said something along these lines he said the fact that we find pleasure in small moments should point us to the fact there are greater pleasures to await us surely this little pleasure that we experience now is not all it indicates that there is something bigger in store and i think most people on our planet deep down inside kind of get that. I think we all kind of understand that there is something more, that there are deeper longings in our soul. The desire to be loved for who we really are. Uh, And and to some extent we we will find a measure of that in in marriage and in friendship, but there there, there resides within us that deeper longing to be be loved for who we are and as we are. The, The longing to be accepted for who we are. And we find some measure of acceptance in joining a club or becoming part of a church. But it, it, there, there remains that deeper underlying longing of, of acceptance for who I really am. There is a, a desire for home uh, to no longer feel out of place, to no longer feel displaced. And we feel a measure of that when we buy our first house. But even in that there is that deeper longing that, that seems of unrest in our souls, we were made for something. more. No. When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden. And we're told that they were made in God's image and in God's likeness. And there's debate about what that might mean. I think it covers a whole bunch of things. I think some of what it includes would be things like the ability to love and be loved. The ability to be gracious and to be filled with grace. I think it would include the ability to, be, to, to display kindness and mercy. In fact, to reflect the nature and character of God. That's what we were called to be and to do, to reflect the glory of God to the universe. But when Adam and Eve rebel, the image of God in them is broken. It's, it's shattered like a mirror. And instead of reflecting God's glory, they tend to reflect their own glory, and put their own glory on display, which is pretty much what humans do today. And we're still capable as human beings of displaying his glory and his grace and his love and his mercy and his justice. And so we see examples of that around the world. But often it's a distorted reflection. We were made to bear his image. We were made to be. Full of grace and glory. And not to be these grubby, selfish, semi-humans that we often see in our world and on the news. And often looking back at us from our shaving in the mornings. We were made to be something greater than this. And here's the promise that Paul sets out for us in this passage. He says that God has given us his spirit. His spirit has been placed in us. And the spirit is given to us to do this job. To painstakingly rebuild that broken mirror in us. Some of you, I think, have been doing puzzles during lockdown. And you've taken the scattered pieces of that puzzle and you're slowly putting it together. And that picture is forming, uh, slowly forming a beautiful picture, right? All those discarded bits that are scattered around, slowly building a beautiful picture. Some of you have struggled with the 10-piece pictures that you're getting there. Uh, Some of you have been doing a 2,000-piece puzzle. Wendy, in a moment of true vindictiveness, gave us a puzzle to do two weeks ago. It's a picture of a of a tiger, but the problem with this puzzle is that it's got uh, pictures on both sides. And I actually meant to bring a couple of the pieces in this morning because all the pieces are in exactly the same shape, and so it's 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 kind of trial and error. It's it's really hard, Wendy. Thanks very much. But I think sometimes. Um, that's kind of what the Holy Spirit is doing at work within us. He's, he's reforming that puzzle picture. And I know that for some of you, it seems as though the mirror's just what got one big crack down in the middle. But for others of us, that mirror has been reduced to dust, and the Spirit is busy reassembling us almost at the atomic level. No wonder the work of restoration seems so slow. He is reforming us in the image of the son. He is making us, once again, truly human. God has made us for this purpose, that though we groan and though we are burdened, one day we will be clothed. And then Paul uses this wonderful language where he says, and what is mortal will be swallowed by life. What is mortal and temporary and frail Will be swallowed up, not by death, we will be swallowed up by, by life. We are even now only half alive. We're, we're somnambulists, we're sleepwalkers, stumbling around at night, stubbing our toes with our eyes half closed. But one day we'll be truly alive. C.S. Lewis, it's a C.S. Lewis morning this morning. C.S. Lewis says that we now live in the Shadowlands and we think it's bright and full of life but it's insubstantial shadows compared to the light and the life that is to come. And he says one day the the curtains will be thrown back and the, the light will stream in what we know, what we experience, but what we've been made for. And then Paul says this, what we're certain of, what we're confident of. He says we're confident of this, that we live by faith and not by sight. He says if we're present in this body, then we're away from the Lord. But there will come a time, when that reverses and we'll be absent from this frail body, but we will be at home with the Lord. At home, no longer wandering nomads, no longer exiles living in a tent, but finally, truly at home, finally in. And this is Paul's confidence, and it should be ours too. And some of you may not be all that confident. Some of you are just slightly hopeful hopeful for a life to come i was chatting to someone yesterday who just said you know family members who just lived like the devil and you're not going yeah i'll be in heaven one day because doesn't everyone go there and kind of slightly hopeful that i hope i've done enough but paul says we don't have to be just slightly hopeful and maybe hope and yes he says no we're confident and paul says i'm confident not because i'm a good person he says, I'm not confident because I've been successful in ministry. He says, my confidence isn't because I've been so religious. In fact, when he writes a letter to the Philippians, he says, I, I place no confidence in my religion. I place no confidence in my good works. I place no confidence in my culture. I place no confidence in, in the, 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 the nation and nationhood that I was born into. He says, my confidence is entirely in Jesus. My confidence is entirely in the one in whom we live by faith. It is by faith in the Son of God who has given himself to us that we have confidence. We live by faith. We are justified by faith. And Paul said it is because of that faith that I'm confident. It's by that faith that I'm confident in the life that is to come. And that mortality will be swallowed by life. And that what we will one day Uh, that we will one day find that we'll we'll find our way home, we'll find our way in from the uh, the cold, we'll we'll come back from being nomads in these frail tents. And I've just got to ask this morning, what is your confidence in? Is your confidence found in in, in finding real life found in, in your abilities? Is your confidence in finding real life found in your accomplishments? Is it found in your own goodness? Is it found in your religiousness? Are you confident in your racial background and your, your family upbringing, your cultural uh, in, in, uh, whatevers? Is your confidence in anything other than Jesus? Because if it is, then you have no reason for confidence at all. Our confidence is our faith in him. So what should we do? What should we do with all of this? We know what we experience what we will be, what we have confidence in, but what shall we do? And Paul says, here's what we will do. We will make it our goal to please him. We'll make it our aim to please him. That's it. That's the goal. Our goal, our aim in life to please him. And Paul says, whether life here and now in this tent or life later on in a building, the, the aim, the goal is to please him. Lots of people have lots of goals and lots of aims in life. They even write down wonderful life goals. Those are all very good things to do. We should have things to aim for. We should have a goal in place. But what is the ultimate overriding goal of all of this? What is it that all other goals should fall under? All fall under this ultimate goal, that we live to please him. And sadly, I think a lot of people get it wrong. I think a lot of people try and figure out what it is, what it means, to please Jesus, and they end up running a long list of rules, a long list of do's and don'ts. If I do this never do that, then Jesus will be pleased. Then God will be happy. Then he'll pat me on the head. These are the things that please God, right? Now, there are a number of ways that you can ask the question, what does it mean to please God? One way would be to say, if we obey his commandments. And again, you can go, no, oh, let's start listing the commandments. But here's what John says. The Apostle John writes about the commandments of God. He says, this is his command." that we believe in the name of his son. So here's John, who's who's all about love and loving one another and not being jealous. He could have said, here are the commands of God that we need to obey. Love one another, be nice to the the neighbors, look after your pets, I I don't know, do kind things. He, He could have put all that out there. But what John does, he says, this is the command of God, that we believe in his son. And there's a whole bunch of people all over the world who are doing all sorts of good things, but who do not believe in his Son. They're doing all the good works, but unless you believe in the Son, you're not obeying the commands of God. You're not pleasing God. God derives pleasure by delighting in his Son. Well, remember what he says, what is written in Hebrews chapter 11, where we read that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the author there is just saying that He's not saying that if we add our faith to the good things that we do, then God will be happy. No, he's very clearly saying in that passage that it is faith alone that pleases God. And yes, that faith will result in actions. And believing in Jesus will result in changed life. But it's not the actions and behavior that bring light to God. It's the faith that brings delight in God. It's the faith in his son that brings him pleasure. Sometimes we'll get stuck with this question. Is God pleased with me? And a lot of us will be tempted to look back over the last day or the last week or whatever. We look back and we look at the things we've said and the things we've done. And we go, no, there's no ways that God could be pleased with me. God has a frowny face when he thinks about me this morning. And yet, if you live by faith in the Son of God, then he is pleased with you. He delights in you. He looks at you with a smile on his face. His pleasure is in you, not because what you have or haven't done, but because what Jesus has done. God is pleased. Martin Luther says this, he said that we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, what he was saying is that it's faith alone that pleases God. But true faith, prompts a change in the way we live true faith prompts that we live in the light of eternity true faith prompts living life here and now living with this confidence with this boldness living out a new life even as we're still in this heat it's faith that pleases god but it's a faith that changes who we are so when are we end today some of you are growing Some of you are burdened. This is your current experience. You're under the cosh. Maybe like last week, you're feeling under pressure. You're feeling perplexed and hounded. That's to be expected. Tents don't always bear out well under the storm. At some point, they start to leak. They get blown around. For now, you may need a little bit of stitching done. For now, you may need a little bit of waterproofing to take place. For now, the burdens are real. But we have this hope and confidence. This tent life, this nomadic refugee life is not forever. What is mortal will be swallowed, but not by death. It will be swallowed by life. The hope that sustains us is that all that is frail and feeble will one day be transformed. I want to finish my reading from C.S. Lewis. I told you it was a C.S. Lewis morning. Um, we've been doing morning devotions. I've been doing them on a WhatsApp group and we're just about coming to the end of what we're doing and I'm going to uh, pick up some of the C.S. Lewis readings um, from here on. So if you'd like to join that WhatsApp group and get a morning devotion from me, uh, send me a message. But here's something that C.S. Lewis writes. He says, the sickle of happiness and security, which we all desire, so that's what we talked about earlier. That there is this deep longing within us the longing to be loved, the longing to be accepted, the longing to be secure. The CSUS says that that settled happiness, that settled security, which we all desire, God withholds from us. I'm like, what God withholds from us? God gives us those things. Wait, for, wait to hear what He says. He says, God withholds these things from us by the very nature of this world, in other words, this world can't offer us the things that we have in this world can't offer us that deep happiness and that deep security. But joy, pleasure, and merriment is scattered about. So what Nurse is saying, he says, we long for deep happiness, but God withholds it from us, and instead of giving us deep happiness, he scatters about moments of joy and delight and happiness. So it's, it's kind of what we've been saying this morning so far. He says, he says we're never fully safe, but we do have plenty of fun. And we do have some ecstasy. And then he says, it's not hard to see why. And some of us might going, might go, but it is hard to see why. I don't understand why. Why doesn't God give us the things that we need here and now? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the security we crave will teach us to rest our hearts in this world. You get what he's saying? C.S. Lewis says, if we can find true love, true security, true happiness, In this world, we will settle for this world and be content. He says, we would rest our hearts in this world, and we would oppose any obstacle in our return to God. And so he says this, he says, a few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bathe, old language here, or a football match, have no such tendency. In other words, they can't give us these lasting moments. But our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends. But he will not encourage us to mistake them for our home. You hear that? You get that? C.S. CS Lewis is saying that true happiness can't be found here. And if it was, we would rest our hearts here and we would never pursue anything. But our God is good and, and fills our world with moments of joy and delight. So that on the road, On that weary road of moaning and groaning and bearing the burden, there are merry moments along the way. There are ends that we stop at to enjoy. But God reminds us that these ends are not our true home. There is joy in the midst of the sorrow. There is delight in the midst of the drudgery. There is happiness in the hardship. There are moments of delights in the end on the road to our final home. And yet we do not live in an end any more than we should live in a tent forever. Enjoy the moments in the tent. Enjoy the moments in the end. Find the delight in the, in the refreshment that they offer. But let's not rest our hearts in this world and mistake it for our home. Let's press on and press in to our true home that awaits us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've prepared us for something more than this, that in the frustrations, of life, in the moments of groaning, in the moments where we feel burdened and overwhelmed, we thank you that even those moments point to something bigger, something greater. That we are reminded that this frail tent will be taken off, we will one day inhabit a building, that um, we are designed for so much more than this. Lord, may that not be an escapism for us, May, may we continue to live here in the life of eternity. And that living here and now, we would live this day. May we live to please you and glorify your name. Lord, may we find true delight here and now. But may we be reminded that our hearts should not rest in this world. But our hearts ultimately find their rest in you. Amen. Folk, enjoy a happy Sunday. We're off to have a bra in our back garden. Um, Enjoy the aroma of our burrow horse as it spreads and wafts around Waterfall. Uh, Have a blessed week and we look forward to being with one another again soon. Online and I, I, I Googled to find the worst ambassador on record. And I found this little gem. I need to read it to you. It's just a wonderful article. Um, it's, it's, it's about the United States of America ambassador to Kenya about 15 years ago. He's no longer the ambassador. But it says this, this and this was an official report on him. The ambassador has lost the respect and the confidence Of the staff to lead the mission of of more than 80 chiefs of mission inspected in recent cycles the ambassador ranked last for interpersonal relations next to last on both managerial skill and attention to morale and third from last in his overall scores from surveys of mission members the inspectors found no reason to question these assessments the ambassador's leadership to, to date has been divisive and ineffective. The assessment of the ambassador goes downhill from there. And I just had to think, how could it possibly go downhill? There is no more downhill to go. That is about as far downhill as you can possibly be. I mean, that's so far downhill that it's at the edge of the, at the bottom of the cliff. It seems that this ambassador hasn't just hit the bottom, but was in fact accelerating when he got to the bottom. An ambassador is someone who is meant to represent the very best of your country. There are a- official ambassadors appointed by the government. that have sent into different countries to negotiate and, be- and present on your nation's behalf while overseas. Apparently, the current uh, United States ambassador to Germany spent the first month in office offending anyone and everyone that he came to contact with. And I think many of us will remember just a year ago, the, uh, the United Kingdom's ambassador to America was sent home in disgrace when his rather frank emails uh, back home were made public. And some of the things that he had said about the current uh, incumbent of the White House were less than, uh, well, less than complimentary. And... One or two people didn't quite like that. So he was sent out. But, you know, even on a smaller scale, our sports teams, for example, act as ambassadors. They may not be officially appointed government representatives, but just think of, of the brand that Sio Colise and the Springboks presented as ambassadors to Japan last year. And not just ambassadors to Japan, but as ambassadors to the world. Well, think about uh, the Australian cricket team from two years ago. Who would have thought that the actions of a sport team would result in the Prime Minister of the country going on national TV and going into international news with a, a, a certain amount of hand wringing and apology. As many people in Australia said, this is not a representative representation of who we really are. And of course, you and I will often act as ambassadors too. If we ever go and travel overseas, if we travel internationally, We travel as ambassadors of our country. So if you're on holiday in, oh, I don't know, France, for example, you're there as ambassadors of South Africa. And we'd love the French people to take a look and go, wow, these South Africans are really nice people. We're going to read this morning in 2 Corinthians that uh, in some sense, we are ambassadors of another country. And we also can be either good or bad ambassadors of another country and another king. And those that we interact with will either go, wow, it sounds like they've got a great home, in it. it sounds like they've got a wonderful king. We'd love to be part of that. And sadly, many will look and go, I'm glad their king doesn't rule me because they're so miserable. They're so selfish. They're so stuck up. They're so self-righteous or whatever the case may be. I think you get the idea of where we're going with this. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians this morning. If you'd like to turn there and you can follow on with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading from verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God. I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right minds, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we could probably have 10 sermons out of this passage this morning. But I would quite like to get to the end of Second Corinthians before a, a, a vaccine is created for COVID-19. So I'm not going to take 10 weeks to deal with just one passage. And so kind of asking the question, what then is the main point? What is the big deal about this passage? What is the, what is the main thing? And I think the primary thing, That Paul is presenting in this passage comes right towards the end where he says that phrase, I implore you, be reconciled to God. I think that is the big focus of this passage. And there are really two parts in this passage. The first few verses, the first four or five verses, gives us Paul's motivation for this appeal. Why he appealed. What what, what drives him to make this appeal? What drives Paul? What motivates Paul in ministry and life? And then the second half of the passage deals with the message. So we've got the motive and the message. What is the message of reconciliation? So the motive behind Paul's appeal of reconciliation and the message of what reconciliation is. So that's where we're going this morning. So the first thing to ask then is, what motivates you to get things done? What is the thing that drives you to get out of bed in the morning? Is it a pressing urge to visit the porcelain? Is it a dull rumble in the tummy in order to go for cornflakes and coffee? Is it a need to get up and get out to go earn your daily crust? What, what motivates you to do anything in life? What drives you to interact with others? What drives you to get a job or to not get a job? What drives you to clean the house? What motivates what motivates you in, in your faith and in your Church attendance, what motivates you to love your wife? If you're a disciple of Jesus, then as we've just said, you're an ambassador of Christ. What motivates and drives you in that? What drives you to be his ambassador, whether good or bad? And Paul in this passage sets up two motivations, two motivations for life and ministry. In chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says this. So because we know what it is to fear God, we seek to persuade. And so the first motivation that Paul has in ministry and life is this, the fear of God. Paul essentially says, I do this out of fear, which doesn't really sound too good, does it? I mean, there's not a whole lot of things that we should be doing that are motivated by fear. Sure, execute spiders out of fear. I think that's completely normal and absolutely acceptable. So that's something that you could perhaps do out of fear. But in general, if it should fear be the primary motivation in the things that we do? I think there are some people who perhaps decided that they'd better become a Christian because they were afraid of going to hell. Is that a good reason for coming to faith? Oh, I'm not so sure it is. Some people get married because they're afraid of spending you know, the, the rest of their lives alone. Is that a good reason? To get married, you know, after 10 years of marriage on your anniversary day, well, dear, I'm so glad I married you because it stopped me from being afraid of being alone. I'm not quite sure how romantic that really is. And fearing God, I mean, should we fear him? Isn't he supposed to be loving and kind? And how would fearing God be a good motivation for anything? Is there a sense of I'll better be nice to my wife because if I don't, God's going to get me? Or I better put more money into the offering because God is watching me and he'll zap me if I don't put in enough. Are those kind of motivations good and healthy? So what's the deal then with this fear of God thing that drives me? Lots of people would like to say what, when the Bible says fear of God, it doesn't actually mean fear. It means something else. It means respect. But if that's the case, then I I just want to ask the question, why then did Paul not say respect? Why didn't he say, out of respect for God, we seek to persuade others? Why did he say fear if he didn't mean fear? So I thought I'd be clever. I thought I'd go and have a look at what the Greek word means because I'm just such a great Greek scholar. So you just ask Google and Google tells you everything. Um, So I went in and had a look at what the Greek says in the original here. And what Paul actually says in in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11 is this. Um, We have a phobos for God. Um, And out of phobos for God, we seek to to, to persuade men. So if you've got any clue about the English language, then you'll, you'll probably recognize that phobos sounds very similar to phobia. And in fact, it's where we get our phobia from. So what Paul actually says in this passage is, That we should fear God. And so, surprisingly, we discover that fear means fear. We should be afraid. Paul says we're terrified of God. And, and, And again, should we? Is that true? And in one sense, yes. We should be terrified. When the Apostle John encounters the risen Jesus at Patmos, all the way in the book of, right at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Jesus appears to John, and we're told, John tells us, I fell down as though dead. And Jesus then says to John, do not be afraid. So why did Jesus need to say that to John? Well, he said it because John was terrified. Because the risen Jesus isn't a nice, fluffy, woody lamb that we can hold and cuddle. Jesus is, in fact, terrifying in his glory so should we be afraid i love how c.s lewis in, in his book the lion Witch, in the water of their children's story I that's the way he susan one of the one of the young girls uh says um she says is he safe talking about aslan the lion she says is he safe and mrs beaver says safe who said anything about safe of course he isn't safe he's a lion but he's also good. He's a king, and that's exactly the truth. Is God safe? Of course not. He's God, but he's good. Perhaps a little bit more helpful is to see how the Bible, what what the Bible contrasts the fear of God with. And it's interesting that the fear of God is not contrast contrasted with the absence of the fear of God, but that the fear of God, uh, particularly in the book of Proverbs, it, is contrasted with. The fear of man. And so the opposite of the fear of God is the fear of man. And here's what the book of Proverbs means when it speaks about the fear of man. Proverbs says that we tend to live our lives under the gaze of something or someone looking for approval. And that's really what the fear of man is. We're doing stuff and looking over our shoulder to see who's approving. Who's giving us a pat on the head? Who's saying, well done? Who's saying, yes, this is the right thing to do? We're living our lives under the gaze of others. And whether the approval you're seeking is your work colleagues or your boss or a family member, (coughs) or perhaps it's your friends down at the pub, or maybe it's even the voice of your dearly departed mother whose words echo in your psyche. We're living our lives under the gaze of others. And I don't know a lot of us would like to say, no, no, I, I'm independent. I'm free. But the truth is, we're, we're, we're living our lives to meet some standards. And even, you, even if you think you've set those standards yourself, you're still living under your own gaze and seeking your own approval. You're, you're seeking to be your own pleaser and, and developing your own self esteem. We're still living our lives under the gaze of me and my self-determination. And so what happens is when I fail in a task, either I beat myself up because I failed me and my standards or others beat me up because we haven't met their approval or our friends will laugh or our pub companions reject us or the voice of the mother from the past echoes in my ear and um, the wooden spoon is applied to my psyche once again. And the Bible says, instead of living our lives under the gaze of others here and now, let's live our lives under the gaze of heaven. Let's seek heaven's approval. And the wonderful thing about the gospel is that that approval comes not based on merit, not based on earnings, not based on appearance, not based on power. But the approval of heaven is entirely by grace and so paul says here's this first thing that drives me in my life and ministry it's that i live my life before god and that's why he's able to say if they call me man well that's okay because it's god's approval that i want if i was all about the fear of man i would change my approach and so so he speaks about those who who are more interested in outward appearance and Paul says, if, if I was really driven by the fear of man instead of the fear of God, I would become more consumed by the outward appearance and by what the ministry looks like externally. But he says, I'm willing to act as a fool. If, if people consider me to be a fool for, for preaching this gospel, well, I'm out of my mind for God's sake. Now, that doesn't mean that as Christians we can be obnoxious and deliberately offensive and be fools. Um, certainly not. I don't think that's particularly pleasing to God either. But it's the sense that we are being driven by what God thinks, being driven by his approval, which is entirely by grace. And so it's worth us pausing for a moment this morning and just asking the question, whose approval do you seek? Who is the grand audience of your life? Whose applause you crave? Which Shakespeare play, was it, where he says, all life is a stage and we're all actors on it. We're looking for someone's approval. We're in the spotlight for someone. Who is it? Then Paul says something slightly surprising in that his second motivation, he says, is the love of Christ. So on the one hand, he says, I'm motivated by the fear of God. And on the other, he says, I'm motivated by the love of Christ. And in some sense, these two things seem to be Opposites, don't they? The fear of God and the love of Christ. And yet Paul says, these are the two things that motivate my life and ministry. He says, Christ's love compels me. And here's how the Bible always expresses the love of Christ. The Bible never says, I know that Jesus loves me because I had a warm, fuzzy feeling when when we sang that song or when I heard that sermon or when I read that Bible verse. It never says, I know Jesus loves me because I got shivers down my spine when when that guy at church gave me an encouragement. It never says, "I, I, I know that Jesus loves me because someone forwarded me a nice sweet poem with flowers on it on WhatsApp or on Facebook. The Bible always says, this is how I know he loves me. Take a look at the cross. Always. It's always the objective truth of the crucifixion and never the subjective experience that demonstrates the proof of his love to us. Now, that's not to say that those other things do not at time, at certain times give us a measure of encouragement. They certainly do, and we should rejoice in those things. But those should not be the primary means of assuring us of the love that Christ has for us. The true certainty of the love for Christ comes in this. Look at the cross. And that's what Paul does here. He says the love of Christ compels us. And then he immediately says Christ died for all. And he died so that we could no longer live for ourselves. And so can you see how that then ties into what we were saying about the fear of God and the fear of man? How often it is that we live for ourselves. We're living for fear and in, in in fear of others. We're in a sense living under the fear of ourselves and seeking our own approval. We think of ourselves so often and what will benefit me? What do I want? What will, what will make me feel good? Many people like to say, I fear no man. I just speak my mind. And, and some people will, will applaud that and say, well, yes, well done. That's great. Independence, I like that. But what they're actually saying is, I'm only interested in me. And I really couldn't be bothered about how that impacts anyone else. But Paul says, That can't be what drives us. We no longer live for ourselves. He says, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you need to understand this, that Christ has died for you. And not only that, that you have now died in him. You share in some way in his death. And because of that, you've been changed. You're now no longer what you were. And he then quotes that or, or, or gives us that, well-known verse that's quoted so often where he says you have been changed the the caterpillar has been turned into the butterfly and i think for a lot of us we're butterflies who are trying to get back to being worms but paul says you've been changed you've been transformed you're now alive in him and so he says that that, that, that little phrase you no longer live for yourself you live for him your life is now lived under his gaze. And so the love of Christ displayed in his sacrifice drives us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice before God and to offer ourselves as a sacrifice before others. It's been said, and I'm going off, um, off, off script here, Um just thinking about the world pandemic we're in at the moment. But over the centuries, Christians have been at the forefront of dealing with pandemics. There were many plagues that riddled the Roman Empire in the first three, four, five hundred years uh, of, um, of the Christian faith. And what often happened in those pandemics is that the wealthy would leave the cities because it was in the cities that plagues were most concentrated because that's where all people are, just as it is today. And the wealthy would leave the city and go into their country homes and avoid the plague. And they would leave the poor to die. And Christians chose to stay in the city. Just to be clear, Christians didn't choose to just go and sit and worship in their homes by themselves. They chose to stay in the city and care for the poor. So that when the doctors and the nurses said, we're no longer going to put our lives at risk, we're going to run away, the Christians said, We'll put our lives at risk. And the Christians were driven by a love for Christ, willing to lay down their lives as a sacrifice and demonstrating love for the, for the society, for the culture, for those around them. And Christians willingly gave their lives to care for the sick and the dying. What, one of the interesting things that happened, of course, is that many Christians, in doing that, developed an immunity to the plagues and the the, the pandemics that were around at the time. But the bigger result was that the wider community, even those who fled to the hills, went, what is it that drives people to do this? What is it that would cause people to put their lives at risk for the sake of others? When they could freely run away and escape and avoid danger, why would they deliberately place themselves in the way of danger? What love drives them? And it's simply this. The love of Christ compels us. We now do things because he loves us and because we love him. Does that describe you in any way? Does that describe the things that motivate and drive you? Are you driven by the love of Christ for others? Or are you still driven by a sense of living for myself? Do your actions, do your attitudes, do your thought patterns, do your thinking describe a love for others? And so we find these two motivations are to be at work in us. Fear and love. And again, they sound mutually exclusive. Isn't it the apostle John who says that perfect love is supposed to drive out fear, right? And yet these two things dovetail together. The two Greatest motivations for us, all we do and all we seek to achieve are these two things the true fear of God and the great love of Christ, and the need to hold on to both of these truths. That we are to live our lives under the gaze of a holy God and fix our gaze upon the cross. And it's those two things that get us out of bed. It? It's those two things that prompt our relationships and lead to the decisions that direct our thoughts and actions. And activities so that's what motivated paul but what about his message what was the message of paul and that was in the second half of the passage that we read this morning. And, and paul kept circling around the same truths i don't know if you noticed but he repeated himself again and again and again twice he told us what god is doing three times he told us how god has done it and three times he says that this is my commission all in the space of four or five verses. So here's what it is, right? Here's what God is doing He's reconciling us to Himself. He's reconciling the world to Himself. Here's how He's doing it He's reconciling the world to Himself through Christ, not counting our sin against us, through the sacrifice of the sinless Savior. And here's what Paul's commission has been to be an ambassador, to declare the message, to announce to the world, be reconciled. So I started today talking about ambassadors. But you know, an an ambassador in Paul's day means something a little different to what it means today. Today, an ambassador goes to a different country, lives in a fancy house, has some access to to the government of the country that he's in, um, and it's quite a pompous kind of position. But the position in Paul's day, an ambassador in Paul's day, was more commonly the guy who would walk into the camp of the defeated enemy With terms of surrender. So there's been a battle, the battle is over, there are dead bodies everywhere, and the victorious team sends a representative in to the loser. And the terms of surrender get read out loud in the loser's camp. And they generally, along the lines of, you're all will be our slaves, we're gonna poke your eyes out and hold them in this bag, we're gonna chop your ears off and turn them into radio antenna. We're going to send you off to be, uh, to work in the, in the salt mines of Siberia. Uh, that, that was kind of what would happen as an ambassador. In fact, it's what should have happened at the Rugby World Cup last year, right? Faf in his South African undies should have gone into the English change room, and he should have been reading out the terms of surrender to the losers. He should have had a little piece of paper to say, sign here. Bill stays with us for the next four years. You have to walk around the streets of London in South African underwear announcing that we're the best team. And if you disagree, we'll meet you back in the field and do it all over again. But in the case of the gospel, what Paul is announcing, things are a little different. Because the terms of surrender aren't about slavery and aren't about rubbing your face in it. But the the terms of surrender are this. Let's get back together. Let's reconcile. See, here's how this whole thing comes down, right? We, God, we were far from God. We were separated from God. We're on opposing teams, but God has conquered. He has won. He's the king, and he offers us these terms, and these are the terms that he offers us. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. These are the terms of surrender that he offers. Come to me, and I'll take the burdens off. That's the appeal of the gospel. It's not come to me and I'm going to give you a bunch of rules and now you're my slaves. It's come to me and enter into joy. And God's appeal to you and to me today is still the same. Be reconciled. Draw in. Be drawn near. And here's how he accomplishes this reconciliation. Three times Paul says that we are reconciled through Christ. Sin's not counted against us. And then at the end, that verse that uh, I think is one of the profound verses in scriptures where where we read that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. How, How does God win? How does God accomplish this righteousness? How does God deal with the rebels who have rejected him? What can God do about the justice that must be dealt out with? Reconciliation happens at the cross. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. And this is God at work right now. Through the cross, sin is not counted against us. So, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. You follow that? Jesus, who was sinless, the only person who ever lived without sin of any kind, becomes sin. And it's a strange way to put it. He literally becomes sin. Not that just that he, he takes on sin, or that he in some way absorbs sin. And certainly not that he becomes sinful, but he becomes sin personified is sin embodied on the cross. It's kind of weird. He becomes sin, and in that, the justice of God is met. And the penalty due to the rebels is, is found, is meted out in Christ. And so that becomes in the terms of surrender. No one else needs to die. Death has already taken place. No ears need to be chopped off. Christ has fulfilled all the requirements and died in your place and mine. And now we become in him the righteousness of God. And again, that's not to say that that we become sinless in our behavior. But it's rather the sense that something is placed on us. It's almost as though the ambassador rides into camp and brings with him the robe of the prince and says, here, wear this, so that when the king meets you, he will see his son's robe. And that's not so so that the king is fooled because he's got bad eyesight and doesn't figure out who you are, but rather it announces this good news, that the rebel has been made a prince. And so now with Paul, I must echo these words to you this morning. Be reconciled to God in Christ. But can I point out something to you? That Paul says, it's God that's making this appeal through me. It's God making this appeal to you through us. God implores us, be reconciled. God pleads. Isn't that the wrong way around? Surely we should be the ones beg and plead? Surely Prince Harry entered into the Springboks change room to beg and plead for terms of mercy, right? Surely it's the, the losers who are begging and pleading for mercy and grace and kindness and for better terms of surrender. And yet in this case, it is God appealing, begging, pleading with us. Be reconciled. So often we're lost in our world. We're we're caught up in our own ambitions and our own achievements and our own drives and dreams and the pursuit of our own independence that we've perhaps lost sight of just how far we have strayed from him. And now, this morning, it is God who pleads with us. Be reconciled. Come home. Come home, all you rebels. And many of you today can say, I have been reconciled to God. And that should be reason for us to celebrate you many years ago, or perhaps just a few weeks ago. They have heard the appeal, and, and the, the work of reconciliation was done. You have been reconciled to him. And when you look at this and get lost in the grammar, you can see that this is a case of God doing something to you. This is his action on you. He has reconciled you to himself and if that's happened to you then then celebrate this morning look back at that moment and celebrate what god has done but i want to point out something here that that i don't know if you notice that that paul is writing this and he's not just writing this to non-christians i think so often we get this idea that the gospel this message of reconciliation is given to people who've never heard the gospel before and that they should respond to it and then come out of the world and and get ready for heaven. And that's it, and now we can move on to other things. But Paul is making this appeal to Christians. It's almost as though he's saying to us this morning, continue to be reconciled. Some of us came to Christ many years ago, and yet we distance ourselves from him through our guilty conscience, perhaps. We think we'd better stay away from him for a while because perhaps he's a little cross with us. Or or perhaps we feel that God hasn't lived up to the expectations that I want from him. He hasn't changed my husband. He hasn't given me a job. He hasn't sorted out my health issue. And so we withdraw from him, Perhaps The tendency in us is to perhaps um, trust in other things. We place our trust in this world and its people and places and possibility and powers. And we trust in our own abilities. We're we're constantly looking around us for things that will give us meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And yet God's constant appeal to us is come back. Come home. Be reconciled. Be transformed. You've been made righteous. Be Reconciled to him. I found this article this week about a lady called Elizabeth Barrett. You may have heard of her. She she was an English poet in the 1800s. A a childhood accident had caused her to lead a life of semi. I'm just reading off the article here. Uh, Lead a life of semi-invalidism, right? Um, She married a guy called Robert Browning in 1846. In her youth, Elizabeth had been watched over by her tyrannical father. And when she and Robert were married, their wedding was held in secret because of her father's disapproval. Immediately after the wedding, the Browning sailed for Italy, and they lived there for the rest of their lives. But even though her parents disowned her, Elizabeth never gave up on the relationship. And every week she wrote them a letter. Not once did they reply. After 10 years, Elizabeth received a large box of mail. And inside that box, Elizabeth found all of her letters. Not one had been opened. Today, those letters represent some of the most beautiful in classical English literature. Had her parents only read a few of them, their relationship with Elizabeth might have been restored. It's a sad story, isn't it? God has sent you a letter. He sent you many letters today. Please read it. Don't send it back unopened. Read the tenderness and compassion of our Savior and the terms of surrender that he offers to us, terms that include joy and delight and freedom. I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. And so our Father, we thank you this morning for your appeal to us. That in your great love and mercy, you call us and draw us to yourself. Thank you for the appeal of the gospel that says come all who are weary and may we all come this morning may we heed the call to be reconciled to continue to to continue in being reconciled lord may we find that you transform us that you change the things that drive and motivate May we be driven by fear of you. May we live our lives under your gaze. May we be driven by the love of Christ who has given himself for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and make yourself a cup of coffee. And uh, hopefully I'll see you in about five minutes on Zoom.